In this episode of the Phantom Jukebox, we begin our two-part series into the 27 Club by learning about some of its most prominent members and how this phenomenon might have grown into what it is today. And we're live. Welcome, everyone, to the Phantom Jukebox. I'm Ty Lindsay. And I'm Joseph Shannon. And we are two musicians that dive into the world of music, their myths, conspiracies, and bizarre music history. You can find episodes like this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Good Pods, uh, Google Play, Samsung, Infinity, Thousand. Yeah. There's so many of them. All of the places. All of the places. And if they have a rating, feature of some kind or some star or any kind of uh, comment section. Tell us what you think about the show. If you uh, give us five stars, it really helps us out. It, you know, it's like YouTube where it has an algorithm and uh, we've been doing really well lately and we'd like to keep the momentum up. We're, I think we're closing in on 3,700 downloads. Oh yeah. Uh, we're on our way there. So if we keep the momentum up, we'd really appreciate to hear from you anyway. So yeah, please, if you could help us out. And if you just want to talk to us, then uh, you can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. We're it, right now. I I tested this out on a couple of different uh, cell phones and computers. If you search Phantom Jukebox, if we're on there, you'll find us. Yeah, like there's not a lot of other Phantom Jukeboxes out there, which is pretty nice. That's very very good for us. Um, so usually. Just one thing before we get officially started with this. Yes. Uh, and a quick word about the subject matter we're going to be covering today, which um, we typically do seem to find the humor in some dark categories. But yeah, um, especially with prod places where people, you know, the stories where people have died, places, I mean, you know, I just named nouns, <laughs> person, places or things. Okay. Yeah. Especially where people have passed in uh in especially tragic ways um i'd like to say that um though we're really really interested in this topic we are going to try to approach it from uh just a we are interested in the subject matter and we're not going to try to i don't know i don't want to lean into the, the uh, gimmicky side the gimmicky side thank you yeah. that's a really really concise way to put it like i don't want to it's I've watched a lot of videos and read some articles talking about the 27 club and it got a little too TMZ for my taste. Yeah. So yeah, well, there, there is going to be humor cause that's just who we are. Yeah. We're, of uh, course. I'd like to think we're funny, <laughs> but um, we do keep in mind that these are real people we're talking about. Yeah. You know, we're not forgetting that these are people and then the other shows and things like that. Not, I'm not going to name anybody in particular, but, they would kind of treat them like concepts, not that they were actually people. Mm. So I just want to keep in mind, we're going to do our best to keep um, uh, a, a very, very healthy amount of respect with what's going on here. So, but we are going to explore the interesting, I where things like this come from. Where did the 27 Club originate? Or at least how did it get so popular? Like how did it enter oh. 
Yeah. The the kind of like the Elvis theories where where did the even concept that he faked his death came from? Why would people even come up with something like that? Yeah. So in this episode, we are going to kind of really focus on the 27 Club on where that came from. Uh, we're going to talk about the main people involved with the 27 Club. We're going to stick to the, the primary ones this time. And in the part two of this, we are going to get a little bit in the speculations, but mainly in the where did this concept come from? Um, and then throw out some things other people, other other studies and theories might have said about certain people and how things might be tied together. Okay. So I did want to leave a bit about that vague because I want to get to our typical first question. Yes. Of our episodes. And Joe, how much do you know right now about the 27 club with all that, you know, all the stuff we talked about in mind? Um, well, I know pretty much the same as like, uh, the legend from high school. Well, I know pretty much the same amount that I did when I heard of the legend of the 27 club in high school. It mm-hmm. was just like, I thought of it more as a, not that the people died was a conspiracy, but how they were linked together was more the conspiracy side of it. But, um, I only know, know of like three people that are on the list, I think. Uh, but if you could define the 27 club okay, yeah, yeah. itself. I mean, um, you're, you're not wrong. Yes. And that's things that get into, probably will get into heavier in the second episode about okay. like how, these, how these things are tied together. But the 27 club is a general topic. I should have been clear. Um, uh, how, how, do you, how would you define that if you have a thoughts on it? What I know of is that it's famous musicians that sadly passed away at the age of 27. Mm-hmm. I remember there being something about a white lighter. I don't know if that's uh, just rumors and uh, wrong, but I remember there's something being tied with that, but just somehow that they're all connected, but uh, it mainly being focused around these like really powerful, like the rising stars of, like mu- the music world that sadly passed away at 27. I didn't really come across a lot with the white lighter myself mm. in the research, but you're pretty much dead on. It's a group of people at the age of 27 that are not necessarily all musicians per se. Like isn't they're, mm-hmm. they're actors oh, and, okay. and an artist of some kind to be a member of this club and club we're going to say be a member of the club or joining the club and things like that. It's not an actual club. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the club is kind of a concept to group these people in and it's yeah, a catchy name. It's, but it's kind of an unfortunate name as well. Like, yeah, no one goes to, you don't, you don't want to be a part of a club that no. involves having to pass away to be a part of it. You know what I mean? No. And it's, um, it's just, it's just a name that was given to it. And it's just basically a way to categorize mm. these people. We actually later on are going to talk about where the, uh, the club part of it came from, hmm. where it got the name, you know, why is it called a club? Yeah. I didn't know there was more to that. I thought it was just a, there is, huh. there is. Well, take a dag, nab it. 
the people we're going to talk about are specific. We're specifically mentioning musicians that have passed. Okay. Yeah. Um, but like I said, there are other artists and other artistic type professions that do qualify to be on the list. Hmm. So let's begin with the origin of the club name. This phenomenon got its popularity through the media during 1969 and 1971 when, uh, the musicians Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison all seemingly died one after another. Wow. Mm-hmm. Like between those years, we had one of those very recently. Uh, I think something that seemed that way very recently uh, was it 2020 or 2019? Like we lost Bowie, Lemmy, mm. so many, yeah. so many artists at one time. And it's like, stop. <laughs> you know, well, there was. I think Prince was a little bit before that or right around that same time. Yeah. Just so many great people of a, of primarily like the eighties, um, just all, well, Bowie's before that, but, um, all this great talent just, just gone and left us Mm -hmm. Leonard Cohen, uh, somewhere in that time, if not slightly before. Yeah. But in our purposes, we're talking about Brian Jones who passed, uh, July 3rd, 1969, Jimi Hendrix, a previous topic of ours. September 18th, 1970, Janis Joplin, October 4th, 1970, and finally Jim Morrison, July 3rd, 1971. Wow. Uh, Something to note, uh, Hendrix and Joplin are weeks apart, so September 18th and October 4th, and Brian Jones and Jim Morrison are two years apart to the same day. They both died July 3rd, two years apart. What? Yeah. So there's things like that, that it's, it's noticing patterns. And I think we talked about the other day uh, when we were out and about talking about how the brain is looking for patterns. Yes. But at the same, I I do agree with that. I I mean, I I said it last time, but um, uh, you did, you did. I have it. (laughs) It's on the record. Pull the tapes. Um, But this is also one of those scenarios that it's like when there's so many coincidences it's like there that's when the speculatory nature of it comes into play where people are start asking a lot of questions because like how what are the odds right and and honestly you can't blame anyone yeah. for noticing things like that uh the one like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix like them on their own being that way is like oh that's kind of weird but Brian Jones and Jim Morrison being two years exactly apart yeah so <laughs> Gonna start uh, making that tinfoil hat now. But it's all that they all died at 27 as well, right? Yeah, all 27. So, I mean, yeah, the, there's more than just one weird coincidence. Right. It, it, you can't help but start to form your mm-hmm. own theories. And it all depends on how rational you are, I suppose. I think that's how like every uh, conspiracy theory basically gets started is just, wow, that that's, that's, a, that's a lot of coincidences. Yeah. It's like, at what point where it's, is it, uh, at what point do you draw the line where it's, you can't yeah. you can't ignore some things? But um, their deaths are are uh, were unusual not just because of their relative closeness, but also because they were twenty seven. Mm-hmm. Um, there are musicians that that so the twenty seven club, as we're talking about now, kind of beginning in the late sixties, by the end of the sixties, there are people that died before then at twenty seven. So the the um, I'm going to, I got to keep calling it this, but I really, I don't have a better term yet. Mm. The club goes before this. Like if, you know, if you're looking at people that died at 27, 
it goes way before um, the 70s. Huh. Uh, one of the more popular ones uh, is our our resident blues man himself, Robert Johnson, our subject of episode oh, two. Oh, yeah. Um, so Hendrix and Robert Johnson are people we covered in a, like, uh, in their own, episodes. in their own episodes. Uh, Robert Johnson was a fun episode. He was episode yeah. two. Uh, yeah. and, uh, Hendrix is a two parter. We had a lot of, that was a fascinating, I want to say had fun. I mean, I did, but it's again, going back to what we talked about earlier. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was very, very interesting. Uh, going through Hendrix and Robert Johnson's stories. Cause again, we, I knew the surface stuff going in, but then really digging into it. Yeah. Uh, you, there's so much to it. Trying to ride the line between uh, respectable, but funny as well. Yeah. It did not get called the 27 club until the nineties. Oh, and I looked around Everywhere I could that as of something reputable or something of note, and I couldn't find out what they called it beforehand. Huh. Yeah. Like it wasn't called the 27 Club before the 90s, because we're gonna we're gonna ready to talk about where it got the name, but I couldn't find anyone that called it anything else. Might have been named off of one of the first four. Uh not the first four. Well, the uh, I want to say major four, but yeah. The term 27 Club was coined by Kurt Cobain's mom. Really? It came from an interview uh, with the Daily World newspaper after wow. he died. So 94, technically. Uh, maybe it's at least 94, depending on exactly when that interview happened. Um, quote, now he's gone and joined that stupid club. I told him not to join that stupid club. So as specific as that sounds, uh, Cobain's family had several tragedies that had happened to it that she may be referencing. Oh, uh, yeah. So, but the, um, Cobain is a big part of part two because he happened, you know, his, his story happens sadly later on. Yeah. Uh, so that is something we wouldn't get it to in part two. Okay. The term stuck and the theories began to form out of the ether. And, uh, you know, being... Cobain being the level, had a level of fame that he was and really connecting to the youth. He was really, he was truly what an icon is, uh, whether he meant to be or not. Like yeah. People really saw him, you know, saw themselves uh, in, in him and his image. Well, a lot of those like interviews, uh, it just, it, I, I liked the fact that it, it seemed like he just didn't want to go along with their BS when the reporter was like, Asking him all these like, uh, you know, typical reporter style questions. It's right. just like, I, I just like making music. Like, what do you, what story are you trying to find here? Yeah. And, uh, one thing I, I kind of wanted to note as, uh, I want to maybe call it like a quiet piece of horror, I guess you could say is I would be devastated if I accidentally gave the catchy name to the thing mm. that befell my kid. You know, yeah. Um, you know that. Uh, basically, naming the Twenty Seven Club like she never meant to, right? Yeah. And I don't know that just that would sting a little. It just make it so much worse. And it's like, why is it called? It? Oh, cool. They took, you know, I took said something really, really pow- you know, powerful and sincere, and then they mm. turned it into, uh, turned it into that. Yeah, I mean that more speaks for like how. Uh, how disgusting the news can be sometimes. 
It's it is cold. Can't be cold. It's like, yeah. Uh, so after the seventies, so after um, Jim Morrison's passing, the it, the momentum would eventually begin to trail off on the Twenty Seven mm-hmm. Club, like because you know it's uh, it you know more of like the you know the kind of like how things kind of happen now, but uh, you know the the interest in that would kind of die down. The 27 Club as we know it today forms out of the 90s with Cobain and then people kind of like thinking back about people who also died at 27. Okay. And then eventually that would kind of trail down. And then in 2011, it would really, it would come back pretty strong with the death of Amy Winehouse. Oh, yeah. Who sadly died at uh, 27 as well. Wow. So... With that in mind, I wanted to talk about the origins of like the phenomenon that is the 27 mm-hmm. Club. Where so we have the name. So where did this like wave of interest in this topic come from? Uh, Charles R. Cross, who is Co- was Cobain's biographer, uh, had a theory that the bulk of the conspiracies and certainly its major like what gave it like, its wind pretty much um, came from it, the growing influence of media. Uh, in the 90s. So the media we know today kind of started in the 90s. Okay. And before then, like yeah. you had your news articles and headlines and, you know, sizzle reels and things like that. Um, or sizzler type, headline type stuff. Yeah, yeah. But you didn't have, I think I mentioned TMZ earlier, you didn't have things like that so much before the 90s. Yeah, where they were really trying to push for like that eye-catching uh like title and uh header to really get you to interested in the news more right and part of that of part of what came you know the reason for that is because there just was so much more so before yeah you had you had your news outlets but you didn't have nearly as many options of news outlets to turn to like you had your alphabet ones abc cbs things like that yeah uh, but you didn't, it was a weekly or sorry, a nightly news thing. Like news happened like once a day at night. Yeah. And you would eventually it would come on and then, you know, you would get your update and then you could, you know, news would come on again. It was a, yeah, you got your local and your, uh, your national national like that's, but it wasn't, you know, there was, there wasn't all of these different outlets all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, um, actually I will save that. There's another reason, but we'll come to that in a few minutes. The 24-hour news channel, CNN, became very popular at this time. I don't think it started in the 90s. It started right around then, but there was a, there was a war going on, and people were, you know, you had this option for 24 news. I think it was the Gulf War happening in the 90s, and people weren't wanting to wait for the nighttime anymore. Oh. Basically... People, you know, there was a there was an interest and desire created, you know, a need created. So basically, seeing it like places like CNN filled it. Mm. Some people yeah. want news all the time, available all the time, twenty four seven, and you know, people it just became part of it. You know, it was a new hot thing. But um, when you need content, the quality, like basically, you with your news is nightly. You have to pick what you're going to talk about. And the most important thing, shuffle to the top. Yeah. So some things get shuffled out. Well, when you have news 24-7, 
just the quality of that, just, just there's no way to stop it from dropping. So the quality of news, and yeah. I'm not saying the 27 Club isn't news, but tabloid type stuff being cycled 24 seven and you have on mm-hmm. top of it, a famous person dying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hot, catchy, you know, headline. Um, you know, you're trying to fight all these other news outlets for attention because you're getting way, way more like thousands. I think there's like a thousand channels now. Yeah. At, and then what we're talking the time period we're talking about, you went from a couple hundred or a hundred to like a thousand. Yeah. It got like literally 10 times harder to sell your news against another news station. Mm-hmm. And you're fighting for eyeballs. So basically things that normally wouldn't make it like conspiracy type talk being on national television. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wouldn't normally make it, but now the avenue for it has been created. Therefore there, here, you know, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah. So, so many new networks and uh, I wanted to point out and I know recently I watched Anchorman 2 probably a couple months ago. <laughs> I'm kind of sad how accurate some of that is because it's about that time period that movie takes place in. Yeah. The first one's like what the 80s, 70s, 80s, yeah. 70s. And then the other one takes place in like the late 80s to 90s. And the <laughs> all the jokes are kind of about this time period, and it's such it, a good movie. And it's funny because it, it it kind of like I don't know about the historical accuracy of it, but like kind of like metaphorically seeing it like to a hyperbole, yeah, it's kind of like what that might have been like. I don't know. But let's put on a car chase. Yes, like more graphics. Wait, wait, people are tuning in. <laughs> yeah, what was it? Follow like, that car. What was it like trying to like? set like settle peace between two warring <laughs> nations and like the interview of a lifetime passed up for yeah yeah <laughs> um slight trivia question for you okay okay um coming from that there was another thing that, okay oh, not multiple choice no oh there was another thing that happened in the 90s that was monumental in the information game what do you think happened? Information game. Like how, like basically it literally brought information in a new way to a new audience. What do you think happened in the 90s? It was monumental. Like life could never go back from what happened. The invention mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. social media or the internet? Which one? The internet. The internet. Yes. You're right. Yes. You want a new car <laughs> whenever you can buy one. <laughs> I'd like to take to stage two, please. Oh, it's just empty. We can't afford anything. <laughs> Congratulations. You can use the stage for five seconds. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's the birth of the internet in like the wow. mid 90s. So the internet kind of existed in some ways before. Uh, but the internet that we know now, this is like the first mm-hmm. iteration of the internet we know now was in the mid nineties. Like I, I've got 94, I think it, it, it kind of coming around 93, 94. And then from there beyond, it became more and more accessible to more and more people. Yeah. Uh, at first, not everybody could have had access to it. And it was only like, you know, it was really expensive and there was only so many people that could get it. But as the years go on, 
it gets available to more and more people yeah. like exponentially. And then we have it in our pockets. And we have it in our, you know, the, that's the, crazy. The confangled light box in your pocket. So, um, yeah. So now we have, it, it's kind of a perfect storm situation. You have the biggest story happens right at the dawn of CNN type media and the internet. Wow. Bam. So you have Kurt Cobain passing at 27. Uh, and then basically all these things talking about it. And then basically it gets so loud and it, it, it enters the, uh, the, I don't know if the words of the zeitgeist, but it enters the, the public in such a mm. way people start to draw dots back to the 70s. Yeah. And then, then things start to roll in. You know, conspiracies begin to be formed. And it's that, it's that meme of, was it Charlie Day with the red string all over the room? Yeah. Uh, Him just kind of like, wait, 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 hear me out. Lighten up all the chat rooms on the newly formed internet. I'm going to, I am my people. Listen. <laughs> um, another thing I wanted to note, and this, this may seem obvious, but this is something I didn't walk in thinking about when I did the research for this, is that uh, I hadn't considered that not only the reliability of the reliability of the information would drop because now everybody has access to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also people are not reading it in the way the author might've intended. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I, th I, I think even though uh, it was on the news and the internet was still like uh, picking up speed, but you still had a lot of word, word of mouth. And I mean, that's the way I first heard, heard about the 27 club was word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like that game of telephone, you know. I think that's oh, where, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's also where, for me, the white lighter came from, is because I had a friend when he told me about the Twenty Seven Club. He was like, "Yeah, and they all had white lighters in their pockets, and so that's why I never use a white lighter." I was like, "You're you're also not a famous musician, but okay." <laughs> you're um, thinking rather highly of yourself. Yeah, yeah, but uh, <laughs> that's ooh, that's a burn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, so, you know, you might gain those little small, like weird facts and, uh, and lose some details that were necessary through the telephone of, of word of mouth and even through these chat rooms and stuff like that. Did you know they all had wings? <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's, so when I, to clarify what I mean before, it's the difference of listening to an album and then listening to Spotify, like a vinyl record album to Spotify. Mm. You're less likely to skip like, I don't know if you had a, uh, a paper article or like a newspaper, you're kind of less likely or tempted to skip around than you are just like something on a screen online. Yeah. So you're that, not, you're not taking in like the first part and then like getting to the middle and then like kind of comprehending up to that point. Yeah. I need to replace my scrolling wheel on my mouse. Uh, I'm a, I'm a major skimmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So now we're going to talk about club members, like the actual members um, that we're focusing on today. Yes. And how they passed. So overall, in general, there's 54 members that make up the musical part of the 27. Club. Oh, wow. That's a lot more than I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, it's ranging from the Brazilian pianist Alexander. Uh, oh. Alexandre Le Levy. Um, Alexandre Levy, born 1864 and dying in 1892, 
to the rapper Frida Santana, born in 1990 and passing in 2018. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's it's a long-spanning deal, but these are, you know, the ones that kind of get it rolling, like we talked about earlier, is the 70s. But if you were to put it, you know, if you were to, like, go back in time, it could, you know, technically there are so many more members than just mm. who was in the 70s. And in the 70s, there's a lot more than this. Like out of out of you yeah. know uh, Brian Jones and and uh, the others like there's there's a lot more. It's just we you know time constraints and then sticking to like the core of uh, yeah. of it. We we kind of chose like the pretty much like the the earlier four. Okay, yeah. So, but there are a lot of people uh, people sadly that could have fit on this list. Yeah. Um. We talked about Robert Johnson. He has his own episode in detail, um, but uh, go really quickly. Uh, born 1911, uh, passed in 1938. He was allegedly poisoned by a uh, lover's jealous hub, uh, lover's jealous boyfriend or husband. Yeah, that's right. That was a really good episode too. Uh, go check that out if you haven't. Yes, our second episode actually yes. of season one. Um, the next one we're going to go into in more detail is Brian Jones. Uh, the first of our big four, let's say, and born 1942 and passed in 1969. He was the founder and multi-instrumentalist in the Rolling Stones. Wow. So he's actually the guy that started the Rolling Stones. Wow. Yeah. That's got some uh, cred behind his name. Yes, he does. Um, and though he's a founding leader, he didn't have many songs with his, like, with writing credits on them. Okay. Um because of the pop direction the Stones went in. He intended the Rolling Stones, I believe they're named after Muddy, a Muddy Waters song, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he, he was a student of the blues. Like He wanted the Rolling Stones to be a blues band. A lot of their covers are blues standards. Mm. Um, so he, he intended for that to happen, and he can write songs, but they're blues songs. And the Mick Jagger and Keith Richards wind up getting like almost, I don't know, 80% of the writing credits to 90% of the writing credits on like every song, but they're writing like pop songs or what was considered pop songs for their age. Yeah. I think this can be said for almost all of these artists. It, I'm imagining a world where if they didn't pass away, the type of music that would have come from that band. Right. You know, like, yeah. If it did have more blues influence later on in the Rolling Stones path, like it's just, just a lot of what ifs, you know, uh, involving all of this. Right. And I think, uh, the, the outlier and that is ACDC. <laughs> Cause they sound exactly yeah. the same. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Let me guess. Yeah, got me there. Let me guess. Cliff Williams is going to be playing bass like um that all being said, I love ACDC. Like it's yeah. not it's not a yeah. knock. It's just like it's, you know, there there are no what ifs with ACDC. And that's actually kind of comforting because it's like you know exactly what you're going to get. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that cuz it's fun. I mean, they're classic for a reason. Yeah, no, they sell out shows at at it could be just like, hey, Angus Young's just going to be somewhere and it would sell out. Yeah. He's just going to, he's not even going to play. He's just going to walk near a guitar sold out. 
Um, anyway, Brian Jones began to become frustrated with the Rolling Stones because, like I, like I was saying earlier, he wanted it to be a blues outfit. And, mm. they, and they were also meant to be a foil to the Beatles. Like, you know, the Beatles were out now and they're just, they're like the clean cut, you know, good English boys like they were supposed to be. Yeah. And the Stones were initially were clean cut, like wore suits. They had the clean cut hair and they were, you know, the, you know, you know, we're also schoolboys kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then they kind of just cut loose later on. You know, you got Mick Jagger doing his thing. I don't know if you call it dancing, but it is something. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to look at at the very least. Um. But, you know, they, they would become that later, and that is not the direction Jones wanted to go into. And in 1969, after, you know, after less and less influence as the albums go on, because it starts pretty bluesy in the beginning. Mm. And then you go down the line, and uh, you get to a point where, um, you know, he's, 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 he's just playing instruments. He's essentially turning into the session guy. The guy that founded the band turns into the session guy and even though he's the leader all the focus is on mick jagger doing his crazy thing on stage yeah mick jagger to be fair though to compete with uh stage attention of it's you against mick jagger he just he's just born for it like he's naturally good at getting people to like getting people's attention yeah like he is the essence of a front man man i don't remember the quote exactly but i think it was david bowie was talking about Mick Jagger and the uh dude talking about like is he a good singer? No. <laughs> but I like do him. do I want to watch Mick Jagger like the performance of it? It's like do I want to buy that or like a classically trained, you know, singer's album? It's like no, I want to listen to Rolling Stones. Right, right, you know? right. It's something about like even though it's not the classical way of doing something it's <laughs> no Bowie would be the king of that. Yeah. He's not necessarily a good singer, man. <laughs> but he's really fun to watch. <laughs> I love Jermaine Clements Bowie. Really fun to watch. <laughs> he's really fun to watch. Yeah, man. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Anyway. Nineteen <laughs> sixty. I love Flight of the Concords. Uh, 1969 after um, a strange relationship kind of kind of things kind of came to a head and he gets I, I forget the word they use it's not um, uh, I think they say relieved um, relieved from the band but really the word should be fired mm. released relieved uh, it's, if there's an English term forced retirement sort of um, he essentially gets fired from the band he founded Oh. Yep. So he retreated to his farmhouse in Sussex and reportedly was actually very happy because he got, a, you know, he was, he was getting more and more frustrated with a project that he was becoming, you know, getting less and less interested in. Yeah. Um, you know, he stayed because it's something he started, but it's, it's not what he wants to go. And there's no way to write the ship because you've got the mountains called Richard and uh, uh, Jagger, <laughs> Mount Jagger and Mount Richard's blocking your path from doing the thing you yeah. want to do. And nobody's moving those mountains because those mountains are making a lot of money. Yeah. And to be fit and to be critical, writing bangers. Like those songs are great. The song like a lot of their early stuff is great. Yeah. Um yeah. 
because painted black too is is kind of bluesy, but it's it's not even really blues or rock. It's just weird, but it's great. Yeah. So uh, this is a summary of this is a very very quick summary because we got to move on of what happened to him. But basically, long kind of a long story short that happens is June third, nineteen sixty nine. Brian Jones throws a party at his home, you know, with his uh, girlfriend at the time. Uh, or long, eh, girlfriend at the time, and then some other people. And then at midnight, his body was found at the bottom of the pool. Oh. Uh, there were several witnesses, but they all had different stories. The bottom of the pool? Body sank as he filled up with water. Sank. Oh. Uh, and the autopsy showed that his organs were very damaged from years of substance abuse. Like he had an enlarged liver and enlarged heart, I believe. Because he was he was known for drinking a lot and I, especially drinking, but uh, I mean all of the all of the stones hit it pretty hard as far as like the drugs and things like that go. Yeah, it's really sad that it's just so unsurprising when you hear like, oh, another musician's like, uh, yeah, has a problem with alcohol or with drugs, and it's sad that that's it happens so often that it's not surprising anymore. Oh, I think it's just kind of the norm. Yeah, of just that lifestyle, you know. Kind of briefly, if you could, I do have a question for you. Ah. Um, do you have uh, any stories of being frustrated with like a band's direction? Uh, kind of in a similar way to Jones. And how do you think it could have been saved? Or do you think it could have? Um, like, do you think him leaving was just just his only option? Yeah, sometimes, I mean, you just have a, the difference in, like, when you have a difference in goals, like, not just uh, immediate decisions as far as each song is concerned, but, like, difference in long-term goals, mm. I don't know how fixable that is. Mm. Okay. You know, I, I think a, a short-term goal is a lot easier to fix, um, you know, and change to what do you want but i mean if if it's a long-term goal that's something you want a lot like that's something you really are striving for right so you're and, working towards yeah and when and when if they're too different uh, i don't really know if that's something that can be mended unless there is uh an actual middle ground that you guys can agree on mm. yeah it kind of seems like um to play devil's advocate brian jones is very heavy set ongoing blues and i think the other guys were just kind of reading the times yeah they were i mean if you were if you're a gambler and you know it's it's mick jagger and keith richards were right like yeah the pop rock thing is what's selling we want to sell this is what we're going to do and which is is understand it's yeah man that that is a hard debate as well just it's a debate of passion versus career yeah it really is it's like i mean I would probably take the path of uh, career, but like, and I, there's a lot of bands that I, f I feel like are doing this. Oh, now that we're, now that we've made it, we're still going to write the stuff that makes money, but Hey, here's a little EP of the stuff that, you know, uh, is our, our roots of the stuff we wanted to try and do, you know? So what you're saying is kind of like at least throw him a bone, like give him yeah, 
Because it sounded like that you were just like, no. <laughs> it sounded yeah, like, I um, mean, do like a, you know, a still go the route you were going. But I mean, you can throw them like a, a, a EP that is more blues oriented. That's like a, a concept album or something like that, you know. Or at least the promise of like, hey, when we can, we will. Yeah. Uh, moving on, we have we do have uh, Jimi Hendrix on the list, but we have two episodes actually in season one dedicated to Jimi Hendrix yes. and fine, fine detail. It could, I think it's nearly three hours of content yeah. on Jimi Hendrix strictly. And it is, uh, or specifically, and it is, I think two of our best episodes. So moving on, uh, we have Janice Joplin, mm. uh, somebody I do want to do an episode on. Uh, she was, she lived from 1943 to 1970. She was a American singer and musician known for very powerful vocals uh, and stage presence. She had a lot of folk rock stuff. Like uh, she worked with, uh, uh, wow, I can't, I can't remember his, uh, Chris Christopherson. Uh, he had a song called Me and Bobby McGee. Oh, okay. She did, one of her famous uh, singles was um, that, a cover of that song. And they worked together a little bit, which is a little more folksy folk rock which um, which is really cool but she was a student of the blues herself like a lot of her influence is blues student of the blues i yes. like that i like that term yeah i well i didn't I've, I've heard it before um i don't know if it was the movie crossroads which i want to do. <laughs> that would be a fun episode this is such a bad but guilty pleasure movie for me she would she had more nuance like she was really great at nuance and things like that and she talked about one of the things she loved about Aretha Franklin and, uh, you know, other like amazing singers like her is that they're they subtlety in what mm. they did. Like when they, when they're doing something simple, it's deceptively simple. Oh, okay. So like it may be like just them holding out a note or something like that, but the reasons why they're doing it and how they're doing it are very, like there's a lot of meaning there. Huh. I may have to listen to re-listen to some of this uh, mm. music is yeah. The, uh, I I love that um, there's so many times, especially when writing for metal music, mm-hmm. where I'm like, I'm trying to make something that's way too difficult. And yeah, that's the, just like, you gotta, so you gotta simplify it sometimes. And that's that, even better. Yeah. I mean, I definitely noticed like, if you listen to some of our early stuff in other world, there's a lot more notes, but as things go on, I think there's, there's less notes. If I think if we were to put tallies on each one, hmm. Um, and it's not like we're going to get to the point where we're just holding out. <laughs> you know? yeah. holding out we're slowly transitioning into doom metal to doom. Uh, but I, I think that the note choices become more deliberate. The more you have a stronger relationship with music. Yeah. So yeah. it's more about the deliberate changes versus how many notes can I do here? Which, I mean, if that's your style, that's your style. But for me, I'm not a shreddy type person. Anyway, I would take a, uh, David Gilmore solo over a um, uh, uh, not Steve. I can do both. Uh, uh, Alexi Leho uh, solo any day. Yeah, you know, no yeah. disrespect to Alexi Leho, but his style is woodshed versus I'm gonna make you cry. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, da- Gilmore is going to make you remember like the taste of your mother's baking. <laughs> you know? Just, just a note. that's going to send you back to grade school. 
Uh, and Alexi Leho is going to get the adrenaline pumping, but it's just, it's just not the same for me. Like I need more, uh, you know, you can smell the cookies in the oven. <laughs> Most when uh, you listen to wish you were here. I want them bends from the Gilmore. Oh, the, the king, the king. The, you shouldn't say the king of the bends. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> the king, the king of, uh, of feely guitar. Bend in that string. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> back to the sad stuff. But, okay. Um, so she was, uh, very much interested in blues and she was, a, she was a very artistic person. Like she was very left brained. Mm. Um, I read that she painted, she wrote, you know, she wrote, um, she was interested in music, especially blues. And, um, she came out of Texas, which at this particular time, um, was not the most, you know, sensitive i guess let's just go not the most artistic um yeah not pretty conservative we're talking pretty conservative times pretty aggressive to people not very welcome to the arts if you will yeah especially <laughs> from other people <laughs> um but she was bullied pretty much her whole life from like the way she looked she's if you were to be this if you were to be objective about it not classically attractive mm. uh janice joplin okay you know yeah and it's it's yeah i don't have a picture to show you and it's not it's it's, it's just like she i don't know she was very sensitive about how she looked and she's not like ugly it's just she's not what they perceived as beautiful at the time mm. you know what i mean she's but um what they would say is, is so uncalled for and really, really hype. Like this unbelievably mean. Wow. Um, so she was bullied about how she looked. And in 1962, she attended the University of Texas, where a fraternity voted her the ugliest man on campus. Wow. That's a double. That is. Jeez. Cruel. Yeah, that is cruel, especially, That's... especially to somebody already very sensitive. Like I'm, you can say I, I, and uh, this is kind of it's coming from somebody who isn't. I hope I can hopefully consider myself an artist, but um, you are just just naturally just with the way you perceive, you know, the arts. It just does make you more sensitive to you know, mental damage, I guess you can say, or things just mm. getting to you in a deeper way. Well, people's, people's like critique. Oh know? yeah. Just being, you're more susceptible to being extremely self-critical. Yeah. And having a bunch of asshats <laughs> say that. Yeah. Uh, is just unbelievably Shit. cruel. That is, that's, that's, that's new levels <laughs> of, there's saying something awful, right? Like, I'm not the nicest person. I mean. But there's putting it out for the, making that, circulating it through the college, and having people actually vote. Vote on it? It's just, there's, and, you know, for her to obviously, quote, unquote, win. You know, it's, oh. that's cruel. That's a, that is a, yeah. it's a, I'll crack a joke, but it's usually not life ruining. You know what I mean? God. That's bad. Yeah. Um, so she, uh, she would leave Texas and she'd go to California where she would like her, 
her younger, I mean, she was 27, but those years would be, I get she didn't, she wouldn't run into that in California. Yeah. More artistics out there. More acceptive. Yeah. Well, there's some parts of Texas that have come around, but uh, California, you know, you've got the hippie movement really coming strong out of there. See, so she just kind of fit in there at the time more. Mm, yeah. So, um, now I'm not going to get into the too many specifics of it, but to point out that she ran into things like the reason I, I say things like that and or brought into things like that here is she like she had this con like this would never leave her life. Yeah, that scarred her mentally forever. Uh, and she would talk about it sometimes, and the things like this kind of just stuck with her and it and it kind of affects things that happened later um but there's more about there's, there's really a lot about her life that would be necessary you know another whole episode would be necessary dedicated to what she kind of goes through in her early years but to summon that up basically drugs entered her life very very early yeah so she left the university went to california and uh she wound up she wound up drinking so much like she got she did a lot of drugs and then she drank so much southern comfort it became part of her like people go like when people think of joe they probably think joe and guitar janice joplin would be janice and bottle of southern comfort nearby oh wow it's not it's not good no um she drank all the time. She would take it straight from the bottle live, like I performing. She would drink Jeez. between this is a, for those aren't who aren't aware. It's like a not super expensive whiskey. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. It's not of like the high level whiskeys. Yeah. And heroin entered her life fairly oh. early into the scene. Oh, um, uh, long story short, she worked her way up into, uh, and this is in modern dollars worked her way up to doing about $1,600 worth of heroin a day. Day. Uh, super roughly meaning a gram of heroin a day. Uh, at one time, 0.2 grams is enough to kill someone. Wow. At one time. That's not ever having a clear mind. No. That is, that is constant use. Uh, by the, this, How do you sleep? I don't. I don't really know the effects of heroin. Yeah, uh, I isn't. It's a downer, isn't it? I don't. I have. I no think idea. heroin is a downer. Like I would, perf- I would rather try every other thing to not have to do heroin. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like if it's like you can either do all of them, but heroin. Or just heroin. I would choose all the rest over heroin. Well, give me that <laughs> like, sunshine acid. Time to meet God. Yeah. I, uh, heroin. That's, that's something I will never mess with. Yeah. No. Oh. Yeah. So um, she, would, she was doing a lot. So at one, you know, there came the day uh, she missed a recording session and a friend of Joplin's was sent to her to- hotel to uh, and to check on her, and, he, and uh, they found her unconscious by the bed. Alcohol was found in her room, but there were no signs of drugs like around. Mm. But um, after it was announced that she was going to be autopsied, the drugs mysteriously reappeared into her room. 
there's a lot of theories on why and how, but the general consensus consensus is she wasn't alone. So there was somebody that took them from there and then brought them back. But to who that is, is what is debated. But it is generally not debated that there was somebody else there. Oh. Yeah. And now we move on to the Lizard King himself, Jim Morrison. Oh, my. 1943 to 1971. Uh, I, believe, I believe of the 70s, he's, he's at the, the, pretty much at the tail end of the original group that passed in the 70s. Because the, the people that didn't quite, that we couldn't fit in this list at the, with our time. Yeah. Um, I believe he is towards the end of that list. He is an American singer, poet, and resident Lizard King. I had to put those. I had to put those. Nice. Um, if you could guess where a man that calls himself, this is a quick one, the man that calls himself the Lizard King would be from in America. Where do you think he came from? Ooh, I mean, that sounds like a Florida man type thing. Is that your final answer? Uh, Florida, Arizona. He, in fact, is a Florida man. Of oh, course he yeah. would be. Of course he oh, would Oh, yeah. He was born in Melbourne. Uh, for I'm, I'm sure uh, people across the pond know Florida man stories. It's always the craziest. Yeah. That's our, we don't have Bigfoot. We don't have a chupacabra. We have Florida man. We have alligators and Florida man. And the skunk ape. We have the skunk ape as well. Um. A couple of, you know, he is a profound singer and uh, electric uh, live performer. Um, I had to look it up. It's not necessarily super important, but I had to look up where the Lizard King thing came from. Okay. And it came from a song called Celebration of the Lizard, which is a spoken sung poem uh, uh, that the Doors did. That It's like 11 minutes long and I listened to it and I'm sorry, Doors fans. It's terrible. It's terrible. Okay. I I had a hard time with this one. <laughs> um I would listen to songs from the White Album before I listened to that again. Oh god. That's low. I would listen to half of a Five Finger Death Punch song before I listened to that wow. again. Wow. Wow, Ty, them fighting words. And the Five Finger fighting word. I <laughs> can't <laughs> <laughs> Half a quarter. I listen to a quarter. <laughs> wow. The lyrics are I am the lizard king. I can do anything. Is that is that uh what stands I believe? Okay. <laughs> he read uh so this is going back to like his you know his studies and stuff. He read avidly from philosophers and poets like Nietzsche and Rimbrod. Hmm. I think it's Rimbod, I think it was. R-I-M-B-A-U-D. But lots of poets, lots of philosophers, um, a lot. Apparently, in his schooling, one of the things I guess teachers would notice, like they would think he was making up the books he was reading, but he was actually reading from a reasonably young age some pretty high level stuff. Wow! Like he was very interested in this, and I have read some of his some of his work. Um, I'm not one to critique poetry in any kind of real detail, but I can tell there is some high level put into it. There's not a lot of high level stuff in every one of like the door songs, but yeah. um, you can tell there's, there's more than just uh, the new, the, the new disturbed songs called bad man. 
<laughs> which with has epic rhymes like bad man, you're a sad man. <laughs> really deep thinkers. What do you think that means? <laughs> I think we got, I think we got to take a whole other episode to break that down. But, um, you know, there's there's a, there's a, there's weight put into the meaning of each word. Like there's there's yeah. a lot of thought into something. There's some kind of high level meaning to the I am the Lizard King. I can do anything. Hmm. But for me at the moment, I I'm probably too dumb to figure that out. He was just that was just him telling the people he's from Florida. <laughs> you know what? Maybe it's an origin story. <laughs> <laughs> um. So so he came from a military family. Um, his dad was a a, a high up uh, a rank of some kind, and they moved a lot. Like he moved like um, I I think it was like something around the time, age of like ten. He'd already moved like five times, like a lot. Wow, yeah, a lot. Like his dad's job required him to move quite a bit. So when he was born in Florida, that's just where they were at at the time, and they moved again from there. So, um, he didn't like his home life. A lot. Yeah. And at one point, um, he witnessed a tragic car. I need to, I mentioned this because it, it came up a couple times. He had witnessed a car crash where his dad and grandfather like helped the people in the car crash. And it left like a permanent scar on him, like mentally, like he, huh. whatever happened with this car crash, uh, I believe it involved like a, a native American, like native Americans on a bus hit something and it was just a, it was just a nightmare. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, Cause I think this is in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and there's something about him and like, like seeing spirits and stuff like that. And cause he's a little kid also at this point. Yeah. But, um, and the time he's describing this, he's been doing a lot of drugs. So oh, let's keep okay. all this in mind. But there's something about seeing them, you know, seeing this, this tragedy and then something about the Native American spirits influencing, influencing him in some way. This just stuck with him forever. Wow. You know what I mean? It, this, this was kind of his thing that happened to him. Yeah. And when we talk about him in detail later on, like in another episode, uh, this makes its way into a short film he made which I can't wait to talk about, <laughs> but we, we don't have time here. Um, so college was an escape for him. He didn't like, he was kind of, he was kind of like a loose, you know, really getting into the, the free love movement and things like that ah. with his really strict military family. And he needed to leave. So he went to California. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it is said after he went to California for college and after college, it is said that he lived off of LSD and canned beans for months. Oh, on a rooftop. Oh, oh, that's, that's the that's the man we're talking about right that's, now. That's an interesting man. That is a Florida man. You can take the Florida man <laughs> out of Florida, <laughs> but you can't take the LSD out of the helicopter. What am I talking about? <laughs> anyway, um. But so he can't was pry the can of beans from his hands. <laughs> Cold dead hands. Um, the lizard can needs his bush beans. <laughs> so he was he was a heavy drinker. Like he did a lot of drugs, but he was a heavier drinker. Like the word used was legendary. Wow. Um, so Jeez. 
he would drink in studio and on stage, but they said one the one time like he would he would kind of curb it a bit is when he was writing lyrics. Mm. So you can tell there was just a the whatever free, you know, destructive tendencies he had, there was a strict mental code about lyrics and writing yeah. that he at the very least drank less when it came to yeah. that. Because he would he would drink to the point he'd black out and pass out on stage. But wow. in the studio, he was apparently more into that, I guess, for some reason. Huh. Or that was just more important to him, I guess. Yeah. Um, so they were having problems with him drinking. He put on weight later on. Like he actually kind of looks like McCready from the thing. Like Kurt Russell's character with the beard. Yeah. Yeah. He puts on a lot of weight because like the Jim Morrison you're thinking about is like skinny Jim Morrison. Yeah. But later on, he doesn't put on like he doesn't get like super, super heavy, but he's a he's a skinny guy. So any weight on him shows pretty drastically. Yeah. So he, you know, he's drinking a lot and he can't help. It's just a, a whiskey is just all sugar, basically. Um, so after recording L.A. Woman, he left the doors and moved to Paris to focus on writing and just kind of take a break from the music industry in general. Mm. Just to kind of like reclaim himself a bit. And apparently he was cleaning up his life. Uh, heroin was apparently still a problem. And it's in Paris in like the 70s. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, L.A., uh, you know, in California and stuff. There's, there's that scene all over the place. Like yeah. Drugs are just something you can get a hold of, especially if you're Jim Morrison. Like if you're super rich and you're the guy from the doors, like people are just giving you stuff. Wow. Right. Um. So, but he apparently had like lost the weight. He trimmed up, you know, he shaved the beard. He was starting to look like old Jim Morrison again, but maybe a little bit healthier. But just heroin is one of the most addictive things, I think, on the planet from what I'm to understand. Yeah, I've been told a lot that like uh, through the rehab facilities, like sometimes the reason why they go back to heroin isn't because they want the high again. It's because they don't want to go through the withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. Like it's that bad. Um, so officially his death was listed as heart failure because he was found, uh, in 71, uh, he was found in a bathtub sitting upright in like water, like he was taking mm. a bath, which there is a lot of debate on that. That's for another time though. Um, a number of people who knew him were convinced that this was an overdose because he was still fighting heroin problems yeah. or his heroin addiction. and the most kind of the most bizarre thing that one about this that I read is that French law does not require autopsy. What? At the time of this happened, the French law does not require someone to be autopsied. They can be, but it's not a requirement in America. It happens kind of, even if it's more or less unnecessary, it happens like huh. it, it. It's just to remove all doubt of things. Kind of going to what you were talking about earlier, where it was just a, a rock star dying. You know, it's like, oh, big surprise. Water is wet. The sky is blue. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how it was looked at. And they're just like, well, that, he died of an overdose. And then they just didn't do anything afterwards. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's sad that it's so common that that's the reaction, basically. Kind of coming to the conclusion on this, we were saying we're getting into earlier is these people like artists are just 
you're just more susceptible to, you know, mental strains and um, just taking things more meaningfully. Like, you know, if it's just a comment where it's like, you think you can laugh it off, but it'll just, it'll just haunt you for the rest of the day. Like, why do they say that? You know, what, yeah. what, what, what's wrong with such and such? I mean, comedians, we talked about it before. I mean, Robin Williams was one of the funniest men alive. Yeah. But he had a lot of things that were bothering him that ultimately he couldn't, he couldn't cope with. Uh, what, yeah. Whatever they might, you know, I don't know the details, but whatever they might be. But there was, there was certainly things that in his life that really, really affected him very, very deeply, more so than somebody who is not as artistically inclined. It's kind of the, the other side to that coin. Well, I mean, it's as an artist, you're, you're making, you're putting yourself out there for it to be judged. That is I mean, that's like point. the whole, like, you want that criticism, even though sometimes it's bad. Right. But I mean, to get that affirmation, we also have to get the criticism sometimes. Yeah. Like you and, have to take, uh, you have to take those risks. Yeah. Uh one of the most painful things is critique, but I mean, if you never release it, it's just you looking at it. And part of making art is wanting other people to look at it. That is an interesting point you bring up. It is a piece of yourself. And mm-hmm. then so when people are very aggressive with it, it's like a piece of you that they're tearing apart. Yeah. Uh, and the more you put yourself into it, yeah, that's the more of you that they don't like. And it's, it's, it's nobody wants to not be liked. Exactly. Everybody wants to be liked to some capacity. Um, it's the sociopaths are the ones. That, yeah, uh, yeah, like the truly uh, don't from care. that band uh, Mayhem. Ooh. Yeah, like Ooh. those guys that uh, they don't want to be liked. They want to be uh, shocked and feared. <laughs> and his, like. But that is a form of wanting to be seen. Yes. Uh, Necro Butcher. I don't think it was Necro Butcher. He was the bass player. Yeah. Uh, the the other the other singer that the the, yeah, the, the neo Nazi that took yeah. over yeah. Uh, knew Hitler uh, when he came in uh. to when he when he came in and took no no it was uh, it was Necro it was Necro the guitar player all those stupid names it's really hard to yeah keep up. anyway the guitar player who was the founder of the band um, that the neo Nazi killed <laughs> yeah so I feel and now we we're talking about the artist earlier. These clowns and mayhem. Yeah. Come no sympathy. <laughs> yeah. No, they were monsters. But it was a good episode. So go ahead, check it out. That was the best way to end that season. Um, <laughs> but what do you, with that guy, all that talk about only, um, only certain people can listen to the music. And I only want the, the, the pure to listen to it. I think that's all marketing. Yeah, that was all just to get people to like, oh, well, why can't I listen to it? I'm going to listen to it right now. 100%. Because well, if you right tell now. somebody you can't do this, what's the first thing they want to do? Is that exactly you that. just told them. Yeah. yeah. So that I think was all, what's the term, uh, uh, baiting people into mm-hmm. it. Uh, and very intentional. It's a reverse psychology. Yes. <laughs> that's the more elegant way to say it. Um. But going back to the going back to people that we actually have feelings for here. But in in these cases, one of the things I I, um, I keep saying me, but me and Dakota came across um, in doing this research is that it truly is that statement of burning twice as bright but half as long. Mm. 
these one of the the, the one of the the few factual common uh, common bits, you know, common threads between these people. That's not really that's not really a conspiracy or conjecture. Is that they lived hard. Yeah, they lived. Like they had really, really full lives. Like they lived full lives in twenty-seven years. Um, and not, not not saying it's like great and sparkly. Because what do we say? Great people that have done great things haven't necessarily had great lives. Yeah. And they, you know, the drugs. They all did drugs. They all drank a lot. Yeah. Um, but part of why they did these things, uh, one of the common things that I noticed as well, is that it really kind of points some fingers about how the music industry chews and spits some people out. Yeah, seriously. Um, Janis Joplin had some, had some things she was kind of walking in with already, but the music industry kind of made it worse for her in a way. Yeah. Like she was kind of walking in with some demons and these other people did too, but Jones, Hendrix and Morrison, um, one way or another were had pressures in their careers to go a direction that they hated and were trying to Morrison, maybe not hated, but Hendrix and Jones for sure hated more uh, Morrison wanting to do something else. Like he wanted to do more poetry stuff. Mm. I mean, clearly an 11 minute spoken word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> song. Yeah, yeah. But there's directions these people wanted to go in and their careers were forcing them into another direction. It was like, no, Hendrix sounds like Foxy Lady. We need 10 more albums of Foxy Lady. Yeah, and it's it's the like especially when you're already deep in the alcohol and drugs yeah. at that point too, then to also get told no, this is what's good. You're insane. Right. If you if if you think that's what's going to make you money, you're insane. Yeah. You know, let me take the reign. And in Hendrix's case, that was what was happening. Yeah. He had somebody that was literally handing him his own money. That's what Hendrix did with it may not have been responsible, but that was not the other person's job to manage. You know what I mean? That's not his, that's Hendrix's right to spend his money as poorly as he wanted to. Yeah. (laughs) Which may or may not have been the case, but what I'm just saying is um, his case is particularly messed up. Uh, Jones, like his was like, he wanted a blues outfit. They wanted to go more pop rock. Uh, Morrison wanted to be even more of an out there artist kind of guy. But basically they all, they all reached kind of a breaking point and had to break away from their careers Mm. that on paper, it's like, Oh, Hendrix was a guitar. They're all musicians getting paid to be musicians, but you kind of go into it a couple more levels and it's, they, it's become a caricature of what they originally liked. Hendrix, when yeah. he wrote Foxy Lady, liked Foxy Lady at the time. But that wasn't going to be his entire life, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's I really kind of like, a, and I don't necessarily know that the music industry is a whole, whole lot better. It's just people can call it out more and people have more ability. You know, we have these confangled light boxes in our pockets now. Yeah. Um, so there's certainly more resources to get help than there was for these artists at that time. That's true. But uh, there is, there's clearly a dark side to being super, super, super famous. And then being a true, being kind of like a true artist and then being vulnerable in some ways. Yeah. Truly putting yourself, you know, truly 
putting yourself into your work at all of it to the point where you kind of forget to live, you know? Yeah. Unless you have like the willpower and, uh, mental fortitude to be able to make it without having an agent, without going through like, what is the musical industry? I don't even know if you really can any, like, I know you can go without a label and without a, like you're getting signed or whatever, but really go through it without dealing with any of the musical music industry, like bullshit. I don't know. There's, there is to some capacity that you're going to be, you are going to deal with. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, no, there, that would just be that jobs version of the thing you don't like. Mm. I mean, as independent as you want, as I mean, as I would like to stay, um, there is, there are facets. I, I have to accept that that's part of the game. Yeah. So, um, are you have any other, that's pretty much where I am on the, at the end of part one for, uh, this two part series. Do you have anything else you want to add to it or any thoughts on uh, what we covered? When you were talking about the, uh, the flames burning brighter, but not lasting as long. Yeah. And literally like the imagery that came to my head is like flares in a room of candles. That is where we're going to conclude part one mm. and part two. We're going to go in, um, heavier detail with uh, Amy Winehouse and uh, Kurt Cobain uh, kind of really breaking into kind of getting into detail. Like we talked about before for like the, probably the first part of it. And then as we go through really kind of getting into um, a little more of the conjecture type things, like maybe more of the speculatory. Oh, I do like the speculatory side of it. Yes. Um, yes. And let us know how, what you thought of this episode and get uh what things you hope to get answered uh, for the second parter. Uh, you can talk to us on Twitter at Phantom Jukebox underscore, Facebook at Phantom Jukebox, Instagram at Phantom Jukebox Podcast, and we're also on TikTok and YouTube as Phantom Jukebox Podcast. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. Um, I really appreciate you, appreciate you joining us for the ride, and if you've been with us since season one, thank you again. Was- Thanks. Thank you for enjoying the ride with us so far. This oh, is a, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that. Thanks for joining us. The break was the break was good, but it is back. It is it is it is good to be back going oh, yeah. into the world, this crazy world of <laughs> obscure music history. But anyway, thank you everybody for tuning in. I want to thank uh, actual audio wizard Kenny Grooms for yes. him mixing the intro music. Um. Research for this was in greatly, in greatly, it was greatly helped. And a huge part of it was our actual social media source was Dakota Galvin. Thank you so much. Uh, She's smiling. (laughs) And thank you, Joe. Thank you, Ty. Thank you for your input. I like the conversations in this episode, but I'm certainly, uh, I'm very interested in part two. And uh, I want to have longer uh pockets of uh debates in that one i'm gonna leave a lot of room for that one for that and that one nice yes and and thank you guys for staying to the very very end of this episode you didn't have Uh, to but here we are until next time